This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, welcome everybody to uh, another in our series of fireside chats. We started these about a year and a half ago, uh, interviewing some of the remarkable people in our department and uh, and school and campus, and it's been uh, been terrific and uh, uh, thrilled that Chris Castle is here. If I went through Chris's entire bio, that would take up the, the time that we have, so I'm going to keep it really short, and we'll go into some of the uh, some of the details uh, during our. Our talk. Chris is really one of the uh, preeminent leaders in American medicine, uh, has been voted one of the most influential people in healthcare many times. Um, she, in some ways, uh, uh, was one of the founders of the modern fields of both geriatrics and medical ethics. She's had a variety of leadership roles, including being a uh, uh, CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine, and in that role, uh, really launched the movement toward professionalism and the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is now, I'm sure, familiar to everyone. Uh, she was the CEO of the National Quality Forum, which uh, uh, tries to improve quality throughout the uh, system and vets quality measures. Um, she was the dean at Oregon uh, Health Sciences University. Uh, she was most recently the uh, founding dean of Kaiser Permanente's new medical school when Kaiser decided it wanted to launch its first medical school. They decided that Chris was the person to help them figure out what a new medical school should look like. And uh, we could not have been happier when she chose to join us this year as our presidential chair. So she's at UCSF uh, in the Department of Medicine helping in all sorts of initiatives. So uh, with that, uh, we'll talk for a half hour or so and then open up to, uh, to all of you. As you see, we're filming this and actually had a, a gratifying response to these on, on YouTube. So uh, you're talking to both this audience and a broader uh, YouTube audience out there. Uh, Let's start with your background. Tell us uh, where you grew up and what your family uh, family life was like. Uh, well, like uh, Kristen Bibbins uh, Domingo, I was a military brat, Navy, not Army. Okay. Um, and uh, so there is not an easy answer to that question about where I grew up. I grew up on Navy bases all over the world. From first grade to 12th grade, I went to 17 schools. Whoa. And um, so I was always the new girl. That was my sort of experience growing up. Some things I learned from that were, um, I think, just to always, I'm always curious about meeting new people. So it's easy for me to show up somewhere and sort of get to know people. Um, Second thing, though, was, I mean, that makes it sound very lovely. It, It also makes it easy to have an academic career like mine in which you move around a lot. Mm-hmm. It sort of it seems normal. Um, but in some ways, it was kind of lonely. Um, so I, because you didn't get to be part of a clique or part of a single group, but the first thing I would do anytime we moved to a new place was go to the library. And so books became my best friends and expanded my world. This was pre-internet, of course. And, um, and I, I, think I, I attribute that to sort of having a kind of a wide range of interests that um, eventually led to medicine. Fascinating. And uh, yeah, I think one of the things you're best known for is extraordinary diplomatic skills. And it sounds like you <laughs> came, from, it came to that partly by coming into a new setting and listening well and right. 
making friends, and uh, that's very interesting. Well, and the other thing I learned, which you know, I think is a piece of advice for anyone, is that friends aren't only about where you are, and that if you're going to maintain friendship, it takes energy. It's sort of like activation energy in physics, you know, against entropy. That um, to stay, in, you just stay in touch with people. And now, when I'm going to a medical meeting somewhere or somewhere, I always make sure to catch up with people who are friends. And so it hasn't, um, it hasn't been so lonely yep. anymore. Yeah. yeah, good. No, I wouldn't yeah. think so anymore. Right. Uh, tell us about what generated your interest in both geriatrics and ethics. Both were kind of emerging areas at the time <laughs> you got interested in them. Right. They were emerging areas, which is a way of saying, why would anybody want to do that? which is what all of my mentors said to me here at UCSF. When I didn't mention that I you did part of your decisions. training here. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was originally, after I graduated medical school, I wanted to be an immunologist. I was fascinated by what was then the new and emerging field of immunology, and I thought I would do clinical research. Um, and what I saw on the wards as just an intern and resident taking care of patients in those days, and what I saw in research, which was way before we had all these safeguards for human subjects, got me really interested in ethics. And I had a background in philosophy. So I discovered there was a program here with Al Johnson, and I went to him and I said, can I just spend a year with you? We had to piece together funding for what became the first bioethics fellowship. Bernie Lowe was the other person, and there were two of us just sort of invented the curriculum. And do you remember a particular case or something that you saw where you said there's an ethical tension here and nobody's really talking about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was a time, and, you know, the House staff should be aware, this was a time when, um, and I talked about this on, in Grand Rounds, when... Um, the nurses would write DNR orders in pencil at the nurse's station so you could erase them after a patient passed away. Really? Mostly we didn't have DNR orders. We had what was called a slow code. So you just knew that you know certain patients weren't going to make it. You didn't really want to hurt them. Yeah. So you Sometimes just... Sometimes called a Hollywood code. You're sort you, of doing yeah. it for show. Yeah. Um, so um, there, those were just a couple of things. And then in the research area, you know, um, there was uh, not real informed consent. That was sort of like a lot of, you, this, we had this wonderful new treatment. You should try it out. This was plasmapheresis for patients who were very sick with myasthenia gravis. Um, and, uh, you know, the PI on our project um, asked me, I was the intern at the time, uh, to make sure and keep these two patients alive in the ICU one more day so we could get data points on them. Mm. So things like that were just happening normally. And I was shocked. I had come to medicine after being out of school for a while, and I was, um, I sort of didn't take this for granted. So, um, uh, so I said, I wonder, you know, if I can go back and look at philosophy and try to figure out what this profession is supposed to be doing and how to understand this. And 
um, I just loved it. It was a wonderful combination of not just me, but a whole lot of people who were asking these questions around that, you know, in the 70s and early 80s. The HIV epidemic had just started. So um, I decided I wanted to make a career out of bio bioethics, but I still wanted to do medicine and be a doctor and be in academia. So how to put that together? And that's when the idea of geriatrics came up. I was looking for a clinical field where there would be important and difficult questions in bioethics, and I got one. <laughs> <laughs> so and it really came from the bioethics interest rather than bioethics. a specific interest yeah. in taking care of older patients. Exactly. That I, um, and then, I, um, as I think you pointed out, I sort of like starting new things. And in both bioethics and in geriatrics, there was not a geriatrics presence in this country at the time. You had to go to, actually, I was one, the first fellow in a VA fellowship in, bio, in geriatrics. And um, they actually sent us to London for six months because the UK had set up geriatrics as an academic yep. discipline. All the famous professors were there. All the textbooks were there. And um, there, you know, in this country, we were just beginning Still in the UK, geriatrics is the most popular specialty off internal medicine. If you if you look at what people do and subspecialize, yeah. more yes. people will go into geriatrics than go right. into cardiology, for example. Right. It's remarkable. Yeah, because it's you know it's very complex. It's in in their system understands all the different factors that have to go into it and the teamwork and and um, much less of a barrier between the hospital and the home and. All those kinds of things. I think you started the first department of geriatrics. Is that is that right? I helped to yes helped to? at Mount Sinai in New York, right? And uh, having done a little bit of the same here with hospital medicine, what was your experience starting a new field? I'm sure people are skeptical, and why do we need this? Isn't geriatrics just a form of internal medicine? And so, how did that all play all, out? Well, by that time, all the all my colleagues in the specialties and subspecialties would you mentioned cardiology would say. Well, I take care of old people. What's the problem? And by that time, you know, I began to understand there was data that there was a problem, and that particularly for older people who have more than one disease, which is most people as they get older, um, this idea of having multiple different specialists and nobody talking to each other, nobody, everybody writing different prescriptions for different medications. Um, uh, was just a setup for disaster. But to explain that to a prominent leading New York cardiologist or mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeon um, took some diplomatic skills. Oh, you mentioned sure that. Sure, that's right, yes. Um, and, and some battles, right? Well, I think what the House staff probably take for granted now, we have an incredible division of geriatrics. Absolutely. Palliative care didn't exist. Right, Sort right. of the integration of clinical ethics into the way we think about Complex yeah. problems, all you know. In some ways, you were you were at the the founding of all those uh, important movements. You know, I've always sort of um, uh, when I've seen something that I think needs to have light shined on it, I sort of always want to do that. And I think that was an issue here. I remember making rounds um, uh, in um, in the early 1980s as a resident and. 
um, uh, the uh, attendings said um, always wanted to have an unusual patient with a rare disease. And so we'd run around and find an unusual patient with a rare disease. And then we'd go out on the wards and we'd see all these old people with common diseases and nobody was teaching us how to take care of them. Yep. You know, it's sort of, I'm a practical person. It didn't make any sense to me. Because they weren't interested, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Right. Uh, I just realized that we often talk about the UCSF Nobel Prize winners and uh, uh, Stan Prusner or uh, Mike Bishop or Harold Varmus. You are, actually are a Nobel Prize winner yes, as well. So right. tell us about that. Well, and that, there's a, some funny stories about that. It was the Nobel Peace Prize um, in 1985. I was very active um, with a number of other people in the medical work to raise awareness about the risks of nuclear weapons and nuclear war. It's hard to think about now, maybe not so hard to think about now, but um, this was a time when the Cold War was really intense and the President Reagan at the time was threatening to, you know, bomb the Russians and back and forth. And what we did was to go around and give talks. One of the most influential ones was here in San Francisco telling people what would be the effect of a nuclear bomb on San Francisco and that the medical profession would be helpless to do anything to help after the fact. Therefore, there was a moral and professional responsibility to help prevent it. It was public health, basically a fund fundamental public health argument. And um, that, along with a lot of activists from the public, led to a huge freeze movement. There was a march of a million people in Central Park at one point, and, and so we actually were awakened five o'clock in the morning. I remember I was at the University of Chicago at the time um, saying that the organization, not me personally, but I was president at the, of it at the time, had won the Nobel Peace Prize along with the Russian <coughs> counterpart because what we did was work across the these nations that really weren't talking to each other, but the scientists and the doctors could talk to each other. Um, so it was a very exciting time, but I still remember, so I was at the University of Chicago, the, they brought in all the press, I'm sure it happens here to, you know, Nobel Prize winners. Um, and I remember Arthur Rubenstein, who was the chair of medicine there, I was the head of general internal medicine. I was getting all these interviews and things, and he sort of stopped and poked his head in the door. He said, Chris, next time medicine. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the Peace Prize. <laughs> he, he would always make jokes about having to set aside a fund in the Department of Medicine to get Chris out of jail. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, a little bit on the activist fortunately, side. Fortunately, that yeah. never really not arrested happened. Any, any no, part of it. No. Okay. You eventually became head of the ABIM. Yes. And uh, why'd you take that job? And tell me kind of what you thought it would be about and what it turned out to be about. Well, um, I had been on the board as a board member, and you know what it was about was setting peers, setting standards for, for, for specialists about what it meant to be a board-certified internist, gastroenterologist, geriatrician, whatever. Um, and that was something that was... <clears throat> unique to the United States. We're the only place where the government doesn't set those standards. The profession sets them for itself. And I really um, believed, and I still believe in that model. Um, and at, at that time, the, the uh, 
CEO stepped down and I was asked to chair the search committee for his replacement. And um, in that process, the search committee sort of ganged up on me and asked me what I'd do it. And I at first was reluctant. But I had been, by that time, I had been part of the Institute of Medicine and I had been on the committees that wrote To Air is Human, Crossing the Quality Chasm. And I'd been part of, I guess, what you'd call the growing quality movement. And it, in all of those discussions, it was all about how can we get the doctors to do X, Y, or Z. The doctors were the problem, not the leaders of the I mean, there were individual leaders like Don Berwick, like yourself. But organized medicine was never in the leadership of how do we improve quality and safety? Um, so I just kind of had this thought, maybe I should go try to do part of that, put an oar in that water. It was a big leap, because I had assumed I would have a career in academic medicine, and I was very comfortable in that role. You were, you were a dean at the time, I right? was a dean at yeah. Oregon, yes. Um, and I just decided, I'm going to do this. Um, and uh, and the the vision was to be to have an, have a medical organization take leadership in improving quality, and that's how I saw that role. And I think I mean, a lot of things happened to the board during your tenure. One of the most prominent was the uh, the push for professionalism. So and 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 then ultimately the choosing wisely campaign. So tell us about how that all came about. Well, um, the professionalism. Uh, project started right around the year 2000. There were, you know, everybody was worrying about Y2K. But we began thinking about what are the pressures on doctors that are different in the 21st century than not. And, you know, the fact that we had these codes of ethics, Hippocrates and Maimonides and these traditional codes, and even the AMA code of ethics, and every organization had their code. But they didn't really address what are the new challenges. Um, for example, improving quality of care, access to care, uh, transparency and honesty with patients. Those kinds of things really were sort of missing from the traditional um, uh, code of ethics. So we got together with the American College of Physicians and the European Federation of Internal Medicine, our colleagues in Europe. And so this is a gang of internists. And we created this um, charter for medical professionalism that um, was published in 2002 uh, simultaneously in Lancet and Annals of Internal Medicine, which was unprecedented. Um, but the editors felt it was such an important document and then it was adopted widely by organi medical organizations, not just internal medicine, but medical organizations. Medical students got it in their pocket in their white coat ceremony, and people still refer to it as kind of a basic founding document. By the way, I think it needs some updating too, now 20 years later, mm -hmm. but you know, that's a topic. That's so what, what were you trying to accomplish with it, what, and, and how well do you think it's worked? Um, I so I remember first hearing it, and it sounded, you know, good. Professionalism sounds right, but it felt a little amorphous and sort of it's a little yeah. bit of everything. Well, and some people would say, what good is a piece of paper? And yeah. in some ways, I think a, a group of principles can be very valuable if you refer back to them. So what it accomplished is, I think, some um, 
standards that were not often, not always observed, I think, um, in some situations. I mean, for example, conflict of interest was one of them, that physicians should avoid conflicts of interest and make public their um, conflicts. Um, so that, that was not part of the Hippocratic Oath. That was nothing we'd thought about before. As a result of that, there was a whole bunch of research about physicians' engagement with industry, about academic medical centers and pharma. And you guys don't remember this, but you know, it used to be a time when that lunch out there would have a drug rep standing there who had paid for it, who would take 10 minutes of your time and give you a little spiel about whatever their thing they're selling that day. And so it was. The lunch you're eating, by the way, was paid for by the department. We don't <laughs> do that right. anymore. <laughs> but yeah, so, I don't think we've so seen the, a pharma rep on campus for yeah. probably not for the lifetime of these the residents who have been here. But that's because of the charter. Yeah, that was not true 10 years the ago. The charter stimulated that work and got the group of people to publish an article in JAMA that kind of went viral. And then medical centers began to get together and say, we, we should do this. Mm-hmm. So it was that kind of thing. It also led to choosing wisely. Yeah, so how did that? happened because it wouldn't have been obvious that the thing that would flow from a report on physician professionalism is this, uh, this, this new movement, which has really completely gone viral, about uh, cutting waste and, yeah. and, and unnecessary expenditures. Well, this was in, um, so we published this in 2002. The, the conflict of interest stuff started a couple of years later. 2008 um, was the big, the election of Obama and the beginning resurgence about talking about health care reform, um, there was a lot of talk about how we need to manage cost as well as quality. And then there was the predictable backlash um, about death panels and rationing and we can't have this. And I was appalled that the medical profession didn't stand up and say this isn't about I mean, people were just trying to sort of avoid the subject. Mm-hmm. People are, doctors are always uncomfortable talking about the costs of care issues. So I, with the ABIM team, I began thinking about what would it take to get the profession to stand up and talk about overuse, talk about unnecessary care, talk about waste, and um, had this, and and we were in other projects working with consumer groups, AARP and consumer union in particular. And we all brainstormed actually at one of the ABIM summer meetings and said, maybe we can get the specialties to just pick five things in each specialty that they think are vulnerable to overuse. And so we got nine very courageous specialty organizations who were the first ones to agree to do this, including the cardiologists, by the way, and the radiologists. Um, and, um, and we had a press conference about the five things that came from each one of them. And the important thing was that Consumer Reports put together a consumer-friendly version of the same information on their website, in their publications. They actually had were working with Wikipedia at the time, so they inserted a lot of it in Wikipedia. And that's when it went viral. And, um, and then all the other specialties, of course, 
there yes, were a number I, of specialties who were join. very reluctant to join in, and then after That's they saw right. they saw everybody the good else press doing that the specialties it. were yeah. getting, they, yeah. they joined in. Yeah. Has the successive? I mean, it's clearly now become part of the language. We we have a caring wisely campaign here, yeah. and you see in the journals they're choosing wisely columns, right. and uh, you know see stuff you know uh, in journals things we do for no reason that kind of thing. Uh, did the success surprise you? It was a surprise. Um, and a delightful one. I mean, it wasn't, it was, we didn't have to spend any money on marketing. It just took care of itself. And there were articles everywhere. And, um, and as you point out, I think a big part of it was we had the right language. How'd you come up to how that language evolve? Well, we hired, we hired communication specialists. It was the only real money that ABIM spent on this was, and it wasn't very much, but we hired some people to do focus groups with um, physicians as well as with the public and try things like cost control, which, you know, all those kinds of things. And they came up with this term, and it just was a term. Did you know, like, the minute they came up with the term, everybody said, oh, yeah, that's Well, it sounded good, but I, you know, again, we couldn't have anticipated how much impact it would have had. That said, let me say that I'm very proud of it, but it we we still need to do a lot more. If you actually go on the website and you look at those lists, there are still a lot of the places where I think we can say more about overuse. And you know, it's that's the profession needs to stand. That's what I call professionalism. Yeah. The profession needs to stand up to the public and do that. I remember one um, physician, uh, primary care physician, actually sort of saying on camera during the, the initial release and all the attention to it, I know I'm going to lose money if I pay attention to this, but it's the right thing to do, and I'm so glad somebody's finally talking about it. So to me, that's professionalism. The people felt uncomfortable ordering unnecessary tests and unnecessary things, but it was kind of the business model. So you sort of did it and went along. Mm-hmm. Now they had a way they could stand up and be proud and do the right thing. But there have been people who looked at that who said there's still it needs teeth, and teeth would be it's yeah. publicly reported whether you're doing things that are not sort of uh, are not uh, associated with better outcomes, or we stop paying for them. So where do you think that movement is from, kind of a political movement and articulating them by the specialties and uh, sort of political mechanisms have more teeth? Well, um, I, think, I think teeth would be important. I mean, I, I think it, you're always, in this country, you're always going to have trouble um, having public insurance, Medicare and Medicaid, say, we're not going to pay for this. Because then there's always some constituency who gets, I mean, you've you got to remember, the board of directors for Congress is, for, for Medicare is Congress. So you have you know, hundreds of people with all their constituents and special interests. It's hard, hard to get that done, and it's always the rationing concern and all that. Um, but the private insurance companies can do it. Um, and frankly, I think, I think that's harder. I think where you see the, the uptake the greatest is places where they don't have the fee-for-service volume incentives. So within Kaiser Permanente, for example, within other prepaid models like the Geisinger Health System and, um, and others, where 
physicians are on salary and, and it's not a volume-based payment model, then they love choosing wisely because it's, it's evidence-based advice that's good and it's good for patient care. So one last question about the board. As you were about to finish your term and I was actually chair of the board, all of the controversy began heating up about maintenance of certification and a pretty powerful movement of folks who said this is wrong and it's burdensome and the measures aren't useful and have come up with kind of alternative arrangements. Uh, taking Now you've been out of it for a few years. Taking a step back, how do you see that movement? Was there any part of that movement that you think is right? or uh, And how do you think the board has responded to it? Um, I Well, we saw this coming, actually, um, and that was part of... The I might give a little word of history, which is there yeah. was not maintenance certification in the old, old, old yes. days. You passed your boards That's right. when you were 28 years old or something. That's right. And you were certified for your entire lifetime. So MOC was a relatively was, new phenomenon. That was true for internal medicine. General surgery and family medicine, starting in the 1970s, required recertification every six to ten years. And so internal medicine did not. And that was at, at a certain point it became just not a meaningful credential anymore. In the public eye, we were starting to get more scrutiny about quality and safety. And people said, how do I know my doctor's any good? And, you know, board certification didn't, was going to lose its meaning. So as a group, all of the boards, the ABMS, um, agreed to <coughs> implement what family medicine and general surgery and some of the others had done already. Um, so change is hard, and yeah. internal medicine is a huge, by far the largest specialty, you know, 280,000 physicians. And so when they get mad, <laughs> you know, they make a big noise. And it wasn't a lot of people, but by then we had the Twitter and, you know, the echo chamber of the Internet. And, and it was not completely unfounded, and so here's, here's what... I sort of was trying to accomplish, and one of the reasons I went to NQF in Washington, by that time, what had happened to the quality movement was it had been become an accountability framework. That the, the people paying for medical care and the consumer advocates were saying, we have to know that we're, what we're getting is good medical care. We have a right to the information about the quality of care so let's publish all the results from the hospitals and the doctors about how they're doing. So it led to all these report cards, all these measurement requirements. And there was, so there was more and more of that kind of work that doctors were having doing. And then in addition to that, they had maintenance of certification was this new thing. So it was sort of like one more burdensome thing that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. What I was trying to do is to get some of those quality measures combined with maintenance of certification so that if a physician maintained their certification, they wouldn't have to do all these other stuff. I didn't succeed at that. But um, so I, th- I, think, I think there there was a lot of burden and a lot of um, what became um, uh, annoying work that they didn't know really added value. I think in the absence of all this other stuff, I think we could have gotten over that. Um, Now that said, the other thing I think is that with modern technology and modern psychometric research, we, the boards, need to be better at making the system work more fluidly, 
more in sync with your individual specialty area and and with the workflow of your work. And I, that's what I think. You're being measured or you're being assessed sort of in real time based yeah. on what you do yeah. rather than a, And I a think that's test. where they're headed now, Seems which I think is good. Yeah. Um, since at the time, I'm going to skip over the NQF era a little bit, so uh, we'll, we can come back to it if you want. Uh, when Kaiser said, we want to start a medical school, this is an enormous organization, very well respected, certainly in California nationally. Um, what excited you about that opportunity? And, uh, and as, as it sort of played out, it must have been a very interesting experience, sort of starting with a fresh piece of paper, thinking yeah. about what medical education needed to look like. Well, I had, um, I had long been an admirer of the, uh, the, the Kaiser system and the sort of way in which they are able to use all of their clinical data to give real-time quality of care results to develop evidence base, to share it, to have physicians work in teams. It's a very um, seamless model and uh, uses modern data technology really brilliantly. Um, And so uh, during my time at ABIM, during my time in Washington, um, working with the president and working with NQF, we were talking more and more, and Bob, you've done some of this work yourself, about the importance of system science to healthcare, and that physicians need to understand it's not all on you. You're part of a large, complex system that you need to understand how systems work. Engineers understand this. We don't generally learn it in medical school um, in order to create greater safety and greater quality and greater patient experience. Um, and and reduce costs. Um, so uh, uh, I thought when, when uh, they called me and asked me what I'd be willing to help get this school started, I thought what a wonderful opportunity to embed students in a system that actually works and have it be all around them. And they had decided, and this is interesting, being in a world-class research institution like this one, they had decided before I came in that they were not going to affiliate with the university to do this. So, the, and the reason for that was so that you didn't have to adapt to all these other cultures, all these different tenure systems and um, different hierarchies and different approaches. It was just pure and simple. This is a so if a student wants to, you know, get a PhD in um, genetics they should not come to the Kaiser Medical School, right? They should come to UCSF. But, um, but if they really want to learn system science and they want to learn kind of how to really work in what I think is going to be the future of the practice of medicine, this is the place to go. There, is, there will be research. It'll be about system science and population health. Um, so... So that meant we had to invent a curriculum to start with. And that's what attracted me. I mean, again, it's just starting something new. Um, And so, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, We uh, decided there would be three, only three departments in this medical school. Because you have the whole Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System. It's your clinical environment where you're teaching. So you don't need to replicate that. so the three departments were the Department of Foundational Science, basic science, basically, 
Department of Clinical Science, which is all the clinical teaching, and Department of Health System Science. That's all you need. And so there are three chairs of departments. Um, and, you know, I, I told them I only wanted to do the startup part and I would give them two years. And so I didn't want to take it, you know, I, to really be a founding dean, you need to be there for 10 years. And mm -hmm. I had other things I wanted to do. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, that, that got them off, I think, to the, to the right start. And um, I'm watching with great interest. I think it's a really interesting model. Did it land, or did you and your group land in the place that you thought you'd land in when you started that process? Pretty much, yeah. so far. I mean, they've just been through the first uh, accreditation visit, which went very well, and are just beginning to recruit students for the founding class. The other thing that experience gave me a chance to do, and this has something to do with why I'm delighted to be here right now, um, is I started seriously thinking about what do you have to do to prepare a physician for 2030 and beyond. The Kaiser students are starting in 2020, they graduate in 24, then they do a residency. So we actually had to be thinking what is a doctor going to be doing in 2030? What do they need to learn? What are the essential skills? Knowing that no one can predict the tech, way technology is going to change, the way consumers' roles are going to change, the way our society might change in 10 years, just, you know, not to mention the healthcare system. So, um, so that, I found that really exciting and interesting to think about it, and I'm still thinking about it. Great. So when you decided to come back, it's really your first leap into full-time academia in 20-ish years, right? Right, right. Uh, what's different than, and I know you've been very affiliated <laughs> with academics and you've been visiting professor a hundred times, but what feels fundamentally different than when you left? Uh, well, first of all, science, you know, has just the leaps and bounds that we've made in biological science and in system science and in technology and information technology. And I've been watching that from my policy world that I've been in primarily. Um, but to actually see the people who are sort of at the cutting edge of beginning to think about and shape that, whatever the next stage of that, is very exciting. Um, the other thing is that I think I haven't gotten real close to it, but I think there have been some really significant changes in the curriculum and the way we think about teaching and the way we think about, and I'm sure this is true in the residency program as well. Um, so um, I'm, you know, just beginning to learn about some of that. Uh, talk about the experience of being a female leader in medicine for your entire career. You've won all sorts of awards as the, as uh, uh, for your leadership for women in medicine. What's that been like, and are there lessons from from that experience? Oh yeah, there's a lot of lessons from that experience. Um, well, this, this there, there are many stories here. Um, uh, one is I have I have to say there's. There have been a lot of frustrations because I know it's true to some extent now, but boy, there were times when I just, my whole life have been the only woman in the room. And um, I stopped thinking about it at a certain point, and I realized other people sort of saw me, you know, in that role. Um, but um, 
all the things that you hear about really do happen. That you know, you say something and they don't pay attention, then some guy says it and they say, "Oh, what a great idea!" You know, that actually really does happen, um, or um, that you get passed over for various things. I mean, I people are celebrating and I celebrate all the wonderful opportunities I've had, but I've thought about writing a memoir called The Girl on the Short List mm. because of all of the short lists I've been on where it became clear really early on that they just wanted to check that box. Mm-hmm. They weren't really seriously considering me as a candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I learned from all that is you just keep smiling and keep talking. Um, I happened last night to see the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg film. I highly recommend it, by the way. It call, it's, it's called In the Matter of Sex or something. It's about how she first broke down the barriers about sex discrimination by taking on a case about sex discrimination against a man. Brilliant move, brilliant move. But she was a very serious Harvard Law School graduate, Columbia, and you know, really dedicated. And her husband, who was also a lawyer, had to coach her about smile. When you're talking to the Supreme Court, say, yes, Your Honor, smile, and then say something devastating, <laughs> and which she got very good at doing. So um, I learned that. I think it's a useful skill. It's not just for show. It's, has to do with respect for other people, putting people at ease, knowing that social change doesn't happen overnight. Um, uh, so I think I learned some of those things. Does it things. feel like it's changing in a oh, tangible yes. way? Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't think we're there yet. If you look at the statistics on number of women who are deans of medical schools and number of women who are cha- department chairs, it's still... You know, single digits in most cases, or low double digits. Um, so we have a long way to go. But I think I think there's a lot of changes. I mean, just if we just look at the numbers of brilliant young women who are just coming in the field, it's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe my last question: uh, Tell tell these folks what you're doing here and <laughs> what what uh, where your joys come from doing it. Uh, well, this presidential chair is really a wonderful opportunity um, to work with really smart people on things that I find interesting where I think I might add value. And um, it's liberating in many ways after decades of running big, complex organizations where a lot of your time, and you know this, goes into managing people um, and budgets and those kinds of things. So I don't have, I don't have that anymore. And you can manage mine if you feel it's like it. <laughs> no, it's very Sounds liberating. wonderful. Yeah. So that means I can really devote time to deeper scholarship and deeper thinking about the big problems. So one of the things I'm um, privileged to work with um, with your team is this question of I'm chairing an ethics and policy advisory committee for how UCSF um, works with big data in improving quality and safety. And there's huge and complex ethical issues involved with that. And yet, it's got to happen. We all know it's happening. And it may even be a model for the whole University of California. Um, so it, this is a great opportunity and something I really am finding fascinating. Um, the other thing I uh, am... Uh, 
hoping to do is I've been talking with Catherine Lucy about this professionalism challenge and the need to sort of take a new look at the charter and talk about what does professionalism mean in this era of big data, of artificial intelligence, of, of the, and, and it gets at what I brought up with Kaiser, the role of the doctor. What, what is the doctor going to need to be and do in a future where you actually have meaningful decision support and you actually have remote systems that work really well? And what is your, and you have teams that take over a lot of the tasks that we always thought were the routine things doctors had to do. What then is the essence? There are, you know, a lot of the Silicon Valley people are predicting we won't need doctors anymore. I don't think that's very likely. Um, but I do think our roles are going to be changing. And so I'm fascinated to have a chance to begin to think about that. Great. Terrific. Let's throw it open and see if anybody has any questions or, or thoughts. Um, I want to thank you for all your contributions, the clear courage that it took to take a, a leading role in these changes. Um, my question picks up on the one statement you made just about a minute ago about what does a doctor need to be and do? And they are different things. And I've read some of your writing about burnout, uh, which clearly is a crisis and clearly is a metaphor for something that's deeply ailing our profession because the data suggests other healers are not experiencing it to the same degree. So the question I have for you is um, what do we need to do beyond external engineering, staying hydrated, playing golf on Saturday, <laughs> cutting up the number of hours we do, you know, all this external engineering. Yes. What do we need to do about the internal engineering and what are your thoughts about the attributes of a physician and a healer? Are they the same thing? Should they be the same thing? And just to go back, what wow. should we be doing about this? <laughs> well, because um, I think you're, nobody's probably better placed to look at that question, given all the things that you've well, done. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. As it happens, I'm chairing a committee right now for the National Academy of Medicine on the topic of clinician wellness. Um, and well-being is what we're calling it. But looking at all of that data and trying to understand all, there are so many drivers leading to this burnout problem. Um, uh, and I think when we think about what does a physician inherently need to be and do, some of it may have to do with bringing the right people into medicine who, um, who and, and then preparing them for dealing with change. I mean, I think part of what I'm describing as all the changes going on, most of us in medical school weren't taught to manage change. In business school, people are taught, there's a course called change management, and you're taught, you know, to be ahead of it, to be with it, to be, it's an exciting thing when things are changing around you. A lot of doctors are saying, oh my God, what are they doing to me now? You know, feeling like a victim of change rather than an agent of change. So I think, I think that's part of it. Um, but I also think that we have we in healthcare leadership have some responsibility about making the systems work better around the doctors because there's a lot of things that are leading to burnout that are these kind of just annoying and frustrating workarounds that physicians can't 
feel like what they're doing is their core mission, which is healing, which is making populations healthier, which is doing good for the community because they have to do all this other stuff, you know, um, euphemistically referred to as paperwork, but it's, it's also seeing systems that don't work, seeing people being lost in the shuffle or um, things that don't end up being you know, really good for patients. What, what do you think of the role of social determinants? We're being sort of pressured to, we recognize that all of the stuff out there is often what makes the difference in their health, and yet we're often powerless to affect those things. Well, and that's sometimes called moral distress, and I think that really is. And and even the kinds of you're you're not experiencing what I was experiencing in my residency with you know slow codes, but everywhere you look, there's moral stresses in what we do. And we sometimes don't acknowledge that. We sometimes don't give ourselves the tools for actually talking about it and processing it professionally as a normal part of the daily role. So as a result, it just eats away at you. And I think that's, um, the social determinants is a big part of that. And I think um, that's why a lot of young people now, I think, are wanting to go into public health or policy areas or places where they feel like you can make that connection and have it and have it work. So um, anyway, those are really important questions. Uh, my question's about um, how medical ethics is taught, in, taught to medical trainees. And my experience, and I think the experience of many here, is that we're taught principalism and taught how to apply it to individual cases. And at this point, I feel so indoctrinated in this that I can't help but think about the four principles and can't think beyond it right now. Hmm. Uh, and, and I was curious to hear your thoughts about the inadequacies of the principalist approach and how you might uh, wow. expand, expand medical training in ethics beyond that. That's a really interesting question. So um, it is true that, um, and I, is that the field that I was at the beginning of starting has made great advances. So we now have a curriculum. We have some sort of generally agreed upon principles. And we have ethics committees. And we have IRBs for research. And we have, so I think to some degree, people think, well, it's all taken care of. It's just kind of like you know, learning um, the Krebs cycle or you know, insulin management or something. You just learn this is what happens when this kind of an ethical problem. And you know what? You know, the thing that. Ethics as a philosophical discipline is not about um, getting to the single right answer. It's about when there are values, perfectly good values, that come in conflict, then how do you think about it? How do you create an analytical framework and a moral framework? And the way to do that is by talking with everyone involved. And I think that's what we're missing now. We haven't, we've kind of assumed that we know how to deal with these things. So we don't allow you, for example, when you're facing a difficult case or a question, to call a conference and say, what, what's the right thing to do here? Um, and that seems like a simple question, but it's a really important question. And people may have different approaches. And we learn from allowing each other to talk about it. So, I think in some ways we may need to remind ourselves that we haven't solved all the problems and we still need to have that language to 
for everyone in medicine to be able to have these discussions. Strikes me that we, you know, in residence report, we talk about the interesting cases. Don't talk that much about the interesting ethical conundrum that we're struggling with. And yeah. part of the challenge is, of course, there isn't the space built into the curriculum. Maybe there's space for the lecture or the seminar, but yeah. not so much for the real-time process. problem solving. Yeah. Right, right. Combining uh, your experience with choosing wisely and uh, setting up the Kaiser Medical School, how do you think we are going to be teaching value in the future and um, indoctrinating these concepts early on in the education of medical students? Well, value is, of course, the new word for cost-effectiveness, right? <laughs> and let's hope it sticks that we can actually have a way of talking about this important issue. Um, so I think um, one of the reasons why the Kaiser Permanente School was so appealing to me was the idea that they actually, it, it works that way internally, that they look very carefully at every intervention and figure out the value proposition. And um, uh, so, and I, I think that um, uh, we need to get better at that in how we think about med medical training. Um, I think you're going to find that where it appears is probably in, um, in public health arenas, in if we get to more payment that's based on value, then people are going to really be getting taking it more seriously. Is that a, a and maybe we're going to get that, there. That in some ways, for a place like ours to fully embrace education about value, do you think it depends on the payment system shifting the, the overall incentives system. that we're yeah. under? Because other, otherwise, it becomes a lecture you get or a class you take, and then the hidden curriculum, which is not so hidden, is all around you, and people are not paying as much attention to that. But the other thing that could happen is that consumers could start demanding it. Um, because more and more insurance now is high deductible. People, even in Medicare, are paying more out of pocket. And I think the baby boomers are going to be more demanding about, well, do I really need that test? How much does this cost? We just had this big story in the news the last couple of days that Medicare released all this data about hospital prices, which is totally impossible to understand for any normal human being. So they went the first step of releasing the prices, but you know, it's not really in some form that people can understand. People are going to get to understand that. And then I think we're going to need to have some way of communicating with patients about cost and about value. Chris, thank you for joining us at UCSF this year, and thank you for doing this. It was wonderful. Thanks. Really it was fun. It. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.